Welcome to IEQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. have changed. Good day wherever you're listening from and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio for Friday, February 1st, 2008. This week, episode 67 comes to you from Studio B in Coriopolis, PA. My name is Joe Hughes or Radio Joe. Here with me in the studio is the wingman, Chris Boisel. Good afternoon, Joe. Good afternoon, Chris. The Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick, is away this week, but he will return next week. If you get a chance, check us out at www.iaqradio.com, or you can also get IAQ console renewal credits by emailing me for a quiz after the show. Today's segments include the Microband Trivia Quiz. We've got Dr. Thad Goddish from Ball State University. Looking forward to that interview. We've got a new segment called IH101 with our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wow, and then we'll come back with the roundup. But first, we have to thank our sponsors, Microband Systems, the microbial management company at microbandsystems.com. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. Dry Ease Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Dry Ease is first in drying solutions at dri-eaz.com. And John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at jondon.com. I also want to throw in a little thank you to the Restoration Forum for uh, putting a link up on their site. And anybody else who would be interested in doing the same, we'd certainly welcome that. You can go to the Restoration Forum at, just like it sounds, restorationforum.com. All right, to contact the show, it's uh, they're making it a little bit easier. You can either call in or you can just listen on the Internet. Uh, you can download the shows later. If you have a little trouble, I've been playing around with this, and there's generally a, an area on the screen that will say having trouble hearing, and uh, you can click on that, and sometimes that will open up another screen for you. But if you have problems, you can always download the shows later. We're available uh, on archive for hopefully forever, Chris. Huh? <laughs> All right. Let's get into also, if you want to contact me, you can send me an email at joe.hughes, that's H-U-G-H-E-S, at iaqtraining.com. Cliff's uh, email address is Cliff Zlotnick, that's Z-O-Z-L-O-T-N-I-K at unsmoke.com. And of course, you can go to the iaqradio.com website and post questions there. Last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. Do we have an intro segment for our first guest here? Oh, wait. We've got to go to the microband trivia quiz first, Chris. Let's go to the micro. I'd normally, that's Cliff John. All right. I need the envelope for the microband trivia quiz. No envelope today? That's all right. I think we got it here somewhere. All right. Yep. Cliff sent us one from, from Mexico. Last week, unfortunately, there were no correct answers. I listened to that one. It was a tough one. And uh, I see we've got one of our old uh, trivia experts online here. Maybe he'll pick up a couple of the uh, outstanding ones. But uh, this week, we have a new microband trivia question for Friday, February 1st, 2008. This is a uh, medical question. Drowning is defined as asphyxia or a lack of oxygen reaching the body tissues due to immersion in water. 
how many types of drowning are there, and what are the differences between them? Another tricky one from uh, our buddy Cliff. All right, let's move over to some intro music for our first guest here. He's an expert. He says he knows better than you. He's got the stuff to prove it all too. And he knows just what to do. And he'll get right to it just as soon as you fill out this form and that one too. And lay all your cards on the table for the expert. We've got a true expert today. Dr. Thad Goddish is a professor of natural resources and environmental management at Ball State University. He directs the university's indoor air quality, indoor environmental research, teaching, and public service activities. His research studies have included formaldehyde contamination of residences and associated health problems, mold contamination of buildings and sampling methods, building radon, indoor air quality problems in school buildings, Emission, emissions from combustion appliances, combusted materials, sick building syndrome issues, and lead-based paint contamination in residences. He has served as an indoor air quality and industrial hygiene consultant, conducting air quality investigations in hundreds of buildings, including residences, private, municipal offices, schools, hospitals, and industrial facilities. And he has also served as an expert witness in numerous personal injury legal claims associated with building environments. Dr. Goddish is also a certified industrial hygienist and an author. He has four books, the first being Air Quality, 4th Edition, 2003. The Indoor Environmental Quality book was in 2000. Sick Buildings, Definition, Diagnosis, and Mitigation in 1995. And Indoor Air Pollution Control in 1989. All published by CRC Press out of Boca Raton, Florida, and we'll get some information on where we can get copies of those books. I also want to mention uh, Dr. Goddard's his website addresses indoor environmental problems affecting millions of Americans. It's an excellent resource. It's called the Indoor Environment Notebook, and it's located at uh, www.bsu, like Ball State University, .edu forward slash I-E-N. Dr. Goddard, do we have you on the line? Uh, yes, you have me on a line, and you need to put capital I-E-N, otherwise it won't come up. Ah, case-sensitive, thank you. Case-sensitive. We will also try and get a link up. Uh, maybe we can do that on our uh, website, Chris. What do you think? All right. Well, welcome to the show. It's great to have you here. And uh, we're really looking forward to this interview. I wanted to start out with some some questions on um, asbestos and lead-based paint. I, I just saw an article in the newspaper somewhere the other day, and there was some new research that had concluded lead exposure early in life could be contributing to cognitive problems later in life. Have you seen anything on this study, and, and do you have any comments? Actually, yeah, actually, there's been several studies. There's been a study out of uh, John Hopkins University. It's an epidemiological study, uh, John Hopkins and University of Michigan. And... Uh, they looked at lead levels in people's, uh, uh, what do you call it, knees. So you can, you know, all of us have lead. Uh, we've been exposed to it for a long time. But you can, you can, you know, get a XRF, X-ray fluorescence device, point it at your knee and quantify the amount of lead that's in your bones. Hmm. And, of course, that's how the study was done. And, and basically, the higher the level of lead in the knee, uh, the greater the loss of cognitive abilities with age. So in essence, what, the, what lead appears to be a do is speed up the aging process relative to one's thinking abilities. Now basically, this has also been shown in rats. So there have been studies uh, exposing rats. There's been studies in, on, on people where they've actually measured the amount of lead in their bone as well. So. Uh, that's not surprising because lead uh, obviously affects uh, the central nervous system. It affects children under the age of five. And uh, it's not surprising that uh, if you get injured by lead, and there are millions of children who are uh, under the age of five who are injured by lead, 
that it would show up later in life. And there are uh, speculations. Actually, the original speculation I heard was on Mercury. Uh, that has yet to be defined, but there's some other concerns about some other chemicals, particularly chlorinated uh, hydrocarbon materials doing the same thing. So uh, sort of stay tuned. Uh, there's more research to come on that. But being exposed to lead, uh, particularly in the first five years of life, uh, unfortunately uh, has unhappy consequences uh, if it's excessive in that period of time and, of course, can have societal effects long, long after that. I, I just saw another article that indicated that if you had a bacterial infection, that those may last with us longer than we thought as well, rather than, you know, you have the immediate problem with whatever, uh, you know. Uh, heal, the healing process uh, later on, a uh, number of injuries, um, uh, lead apparently interferes with the healing process. And I can't remember exactly uh, when in life that occurs. It's not, it's, you know, there, there is a lag time. Uh, uh, it's usually a later in life type of thing. Okay. Now, I'm, I'm also wondering if you're familiar with the status of this property renovation rule. That was for lead safe work practice training for people who, I guess, contractors doing renovation that may disturb lead-based paint. I yeah. heard there was a final rule, and now I haven't seen anything on it. Can you uh, fill us in? No, yeah, there are no rules. Uh, one of the problems with, uh, now of course, this would come through EPA or HUD, and of course they both have uh, authority in, in, in terms of these things, and so they have to uh, make decisions on, uh, you know, uh, training and, and so on. Uh, right now, uh, my guess is that they're, the staff people are looking at it, but it's going to be a while before a new rule comes out. Uh, obviously, if, if you're disturbing asbestos, or not asbestos, uh, lead as a consequence of doing a renovation in which you're doing a lead abatement, you have to have training. But if you're doing other kinds of renovations where you know, you, uh, there's a chance that you're going to disturb lead. Uh, uh, just, you know, and, and you're not a lead contractor. Uh, those people need to have more than just a pamphlet. Okay. That, that, training, that training should be there. Yeah, I guess that's an OSHA requirement as well, that, they have some, that their employees have some training. That's so. right. Okay. Well, the thing is, at least the you know, at least the contractor ought to have training because at least the, the contractor can inform the employees. Uh, and of course, this happens with asbestos. Even to this day, you know, there are there are contractors that come in and they have uh, subcontractors. And they're, they they uh, they're doing wiring for uh, let's say computer systems or whatever, and uh, they disturb asbestos and. Uh, they don't have a clue it's there, uh, and, and, and obviously we've had an incident like that here in Muncie not, not too long ago. And, of course, we've been into asbestos uh, uh, abatements for, she was uh, controlled as, asbestos abatements for, 30, uh, for 20 years and basically going back to, to the early 70s. So uh, those things keep coming up. I'm, I'm curious. I've saw in Florida a contractor, and I've heard of other areas where water damage restoration contractors have been getting some pretty hefty penalties for disturbing asbestos-containing materials. Have you seen that in your part of the country? Uh, no, you don't see much of that. Uh, you know, uh, Midwest obviously is a very different place than Florida because uh, uh, we're much more conservative and uh, uh, these kind of, you know, the coastal regions tend to have uh, a lot more concern about uh, toxics in buildings than, let's say, the Midlands do. It's just, um, it's just the way uh, uh, we are out in this part of the country. Okay. And I'm just also curious, I've, I've seen, I've been out of the asbestos world for a little while. I still dabble on occasion, let's say, but uh, I've been doing more indoor air quality the last six or seven years. Have there been any new asbestos abatement techniques or innovative techniques that are being allowed now that weren't allowed prior? 
Well, I, you know, I, I do teach an asbestos inspector course, and years ago I used to teach a contractor course, and I haven't really kept up with innovations. And from what I know, uh, pretty much what we were using in 1987 is pretty much what we're using today. Uh, there, there are usually some small innovations, but they're sort of, you know, they're, uh, um, you know, nothing major. Uh, actually, probably the one of the innovations uh, coming through that probably may affect uh, people in the asbestos trades is, is the training requirements. Uh, uh, the question of online courses, for instance, for online courses for refresher courses and things like that. And that would obviously affect uh, uh, professionals uh, significantly, and uh, there will be, uh, they will be allowed, for instance, the inspectors will be able to take the refreshers online. That's a, that's, that's an, that's a new thing. And of course, that's going to, that's, that's going to save uh, inspectors uh, the, co the cost or the, the you know, losing time from work. Uh, they don't have to take a half day off, drive somewhere, uh, take the course, which is pretty much you know, just a repeat of what you've already had. Uh, I personally don't think much of the refresher courses, and, and uh, I think EPA should, you know, if you have a refresher course, uh, maybe once every three to five years, but every year uh, is, is a gross waste of time. But uh, uh, having online courses, uh, refresher courses, uh, would mitigate that somewhat. And that's, is that a Region 5 thing? You're in Region 5, aren't you? Uh, we're in Region 5, yes. Uh, I, I'm not sure I would have to look at uh, my correspondence, uh, but I, I think it did come out of Region 5. But if Region 5 is allowed to do that, I would expect the other regions will do it as well. I'd say that's a good bet. Well, let's move. Uh, yeah, good bet, and and you know, from uh, professionals in the uh, asbestos trades like that, uh, that's uh, that's a good thing because it it, it is uh, most people hate to take those refresher courses. Oh, I I know. They don't, <laughs> they, don't they don't think it's worth the time and money, and personally, uh, I don't think it's worth the time and money. But nevertheless, that's what the rules are, and so you have to conform with the rules. I don't know if it's tougher taking them or teaching them. <laughs> uh, well, teaching them is easy, but uh, after a while, you're. If if I'm uh, when I teach and I uh, I'm just repeating stuff that uh, you know I have a captive audience and they have they're there because they have to be there. They're not learning anything new. Uh, I feel I've wasted my time as well, and I'd rather not. I'd, you know, I'd love to get the money, but. Heck, this is not what I'd rather do. I can understand that. Let's move on to uh, the indoor air quality, indoor environmental quality issue. And I, I'm not, I want to try and tie this in because I saw a news release where you were quoted on, and on October 3rd, I believe it was this year, Associated Press article about a $2.5 million grant presented to Ball State from the federal government for emergency public communication personnel training. And that you're, you're going to use that money to create DVDs, to give to 9-11 dispatch centers, etc. Um, and then you were quoted as saying, if you've got a truck going down the highway and it spills ammonia all over the road or a magnesium fire at a plant, how best do you let the public know what to do and whether to evacuate? And I think that's where it becomes an indoor air quality issue. Can you tell us a little bit more about this project and, and how is it that you determine when to evacuate people from their homes uh, when an outdoor environmental problem becomes an indoor environmental problem? Well, that's a, that's a, a decision that an emergency manager is going to have to make. And uh, uh, sometimes you can make that decision based on, you know, your hazmat team being able to uh, take their uh, uh, Draeger tubes and so on and, and make measurements and say, well, these are, levels are, are X, uh, they're way too high. Uh, we need to evacuate uh, for you know half a mile, or based on weather conditions, uh, we need to do that kind of evacuation. But getting back to to the grant, uh, uh, in essence, what we're doing is that one of the things we're creating here at the university is a major and minor program in emergency management and homeland security. And so this goes this grant goes along with the uh, our academic programs. 
but one of the key areas uh, is, you know, if you have a 9-11 a type of situation or a Hurricane Katrina or uh, a spill, which is far more common, uh, you know, calls come in to the 911 operator. And that 911 operator has to make, oftentimes, is the, is the first, it is the, that person, the first contact with the public. The public wants to know what are the dangers. And the 911 people need a lot more training than many of them get, particularly in all kinds of areas, obviously public safety and so on, uh, fire and, and, and police and that type of thing, but uh, certainly in terms of of chemical emergencies and even emergencies like hurricanes and obviously terrorism and so on. So we, you know, it's a we we have a uh, interdisciplinary team, uh, people from telecommunications, uh, individuals from uh, journalism. They are uh, have experience in uh, uh, basically public information, uh, getting public information out, getting it, you know, having it accurate so the public uh, is informed. You know, an informed public basically is a lot better than one is that is subject to rumors, and uh, rumors can obviously can be very harmful. So, it's an outgrowth of uh, a direction that we're taking in here at Ball State in terms of academic programs in emergency management and homeland security. And yes, it's nice to have a nice big grant, uh, particularly uh, you know late in one's career and and so on. But basically, obviously, uh, uh, what's outside? Uh, can definitely get inside, and uh, uh, obviously, uh, uh, you know, we we, we have uh, times when we have to evacuate buildings. Uh, uh, we've done that on campus, picric acid, for instance, uh, sitting on a shelf. Uh, what do we do? Uh, you know, we've got to evacuate buildings, and well, it, in that way, it may be not been an indoor air quality problem, but it's an indoor environment problem because it's an explosion hazard. I see. Okay. So that's why, you know, when when I write, I you know I say, you know, the question is indoor air quality versus indoor environment. Uh, there are issues that are indoor environment issues that may not be indoor air issues at least at the particular time. Uh, you know, a, 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 an explosive situation is not an air quality problem, but it's definitely an indoor environment problem. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, what other kinds of grants have you worked on in the past with respect to indoor air quality? Oh, gee whiz. Actually, I, I, I got my first grant in 1983 from EPA. We were doing work on trying to reduce formaldehyde levels in uh, mobile homes and other buildings. And, you know, we did evaluations on ventilation and uh, treating the source of the formaldehyde, like the materials and so on. Uh, worked on that. I mean, uh, formaldehyde, uh, I worked on formaldehyde for about 20 years, and I, I used to be the world's expert on, on formaldehyde contamination of buildings. And then, fortunately, uh, I worked myself out of the job. I became the MAGTAG repairman. <laughs> uh, I, used to, I used to get, uh, back in the early 80s, mid-80s, uh, I could spend all afternoon just answering questions on the phone. And by the year 2000, uh, you know, I could sit by my phone and get one phone call a year. So, in essence, uh, work myself out of the job. But uh, uh, you know, being world's expert when nobody cares anymore is uh, not a whole lot of fun. But it's reassuring because obviously, you think at least the problem has result been resolved. But the Katrina trailer business. Yeah. What 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 changed there? Well, actually, uh, actually, some things changed and some things didn't. The reality is that in mobile homes, for a lot of the the levels really did come down. Uh, in essence, the complaints disappeared. The reality is that formaldehyde level in a number of those uh, trailers was probably still too high. People just simply it was yesterday's story. They don't. They didn't see anything in the news, and so therefore connections weren't made. Now, with Katrina, when when you have that many people displayed and you need temporary housing, uh, and you have to uh, create that temporary housing, and uh, typically you go to, you know, when you make a travel trailer, the floor is made out of particle board. That's the standard material. Uh, that they use, and of course that's a formaldehyde-releasing glue. 
Now, U.S. Uh, wood product makers uh, basically have improved their products considerably. They were terribly bad in the late 70s, early 80s, up until about 1990. And as they improved their product, complaints went down. However, when you have to build 500,000 of these units and your domestic industry can't keep up with the demand for those wood products, you look other places. And those other places are Thailand and China and so on. And, you know, uh, when I go to my international conferences and I, my colleagues from other countries give presentations on formaldehyde, I look at those numbers and I say, my God, we haven't seen those kind of numbers since the early 1980s in, in the United States. So their quality standards in terms of uh, producing particle board, plywood, medium density fiber board are relatively primitive. They're, they're way back as we were in the early 80s. Well, so go ahead, I'm sorry. That stuff, was, that stuff was being used to make manufacture these trailers. And some of them were very, uh, were very high, depended on the manufacturer where they got the materials from. But all of them, uh, you know, they rediscovered that, yes, formaldehyde is a problem in mobile homes. It's a problem in travel trailers. Uh, some are worse because of where the materials came from. But basically, uh, the problem hasn't totally gone away to begin with. It's just simply we weren't getting the complaints from homeowners and so on. So it, it's sort of a rediscovery of a problem that we thought went away uh, really didn't go away, and then uh, also changing in you know uh, global economies where uh, stuff that would have been bought in this country is being bought from somewhere else, where the standards of production are very different than what they are here. And when when you say the levels are too high, can you give us some ballpark idea for what you know you look at in an indoor environment as being too high for formaldehyde and what type of health problems this could cause? Well, boy, they, those have changed enormously over a period of time, over years. Uh, back, back in the early 80s, uh, you could get concentrations anywhere from 0.10 parts per million or 100 parts per billion up to 30, 40, uh, uh, 300 to 400 parts per billion. Uh, and you'd, you'd, live, you'd walk into a home like that and your nasal passages would be irritated, your eyes would be irritated, and, and people were living in that, and young, young children sick from the day they came home from the hospital. Three years later, you know, uh, the doctor says, you better get that child out of that home. Uh, that's high kind of levels uh, which were not uncommon at that time, and we're talking about millions of homes. Uh, that, uh, those, and back then, I would recommend to people well, if you can get the number down to about 0.05 parts per million or 50 parts per billion, my own personal experience indicates that you should be relatively comfortable and safe. Well, uh, since that time, the levels that are recommended, you know, quote, safe levels, uh, have changed considerably. They're even lower than what I thought was a, a safe level at that particular time. Uh, you know, there, there is the... Uh, uh, numbers from the California Air Resources Board, which are really uh, low, but even lower than that, uh, there's an agency for toxic substance and disease registry. It's under it's the Centers for Disease Control, and it came out of the Superfund law. And uh, uh, they, they have, uh, the, I can't remember the exact number, but it's extraordinarily low. And, uh, you know, for a, a long-term exposure, it, it, it's like, Oh, gee, was somewhere in the neighborhood of uh, uh, probably uh, 15 parts per billion, uh, 0.015 parts per million. I think that's about the number on a long-term basis. Uh, back uh, when I first started with formaldehyde, we didn't think those numbers were achievable, but uh, and it was very hard to get to science, but the science has basically shown that... Uh, uh, it doesn't take a whole lot, a lot of formaldehyde to make somebody ill. Now, I know we've got Dr. Wow on the line here, and I'm going to bring him in for the Industrial Hygiene 101. Maybe he can explain a little better how these PPM and PPB and all of that go. But I'm curious, what do you know what kind of levels they're finding in these FEMA trailers? Oh, 
they were, some of them were as high as one part per million. I see. Uh, they, so, uh, but uh, some of that was because the FEMA trailers in, in uh, uh, Baton Rouge were sitting out in the sun. Uh, when you test uh, a trailer sitting in the sun and there is no air conditioning on, uh, the, the formaldehyde concentration goes up uh, for every 8-degree increase, 8, 10-degree increase of temperature, the formaldehyde level doubles. So if it's 90 or 95 degrees in a, in a mobile home or travel trailer, uh, compared to 85 degrees, the level will be twice as high. So, you know, people don't live at 95 degrees, typically. So no. the numbers are based on unoccupied uh, trailers sitting in the sun, but when they air-conditioned them, it came down to about 0.3 parts per million, and that's way too high. I see. Now, would the the um, best recommendation be to ventilate these uh, trailers? That, yeah, that's what FEMA was recommending because, you know, theoretically, these trailers, the FEMA had the notion that at most people would be living in these for six months. And, of course, it's uh, beyond two years, and there's still people living in these trailers. Most of the trailers... Uh, uh, are not occupied anymore, but I can't remember. There's, there may be 30, 40, 50,000 that are still occupied. And, of course, people have been living in those, and they have the classical formaldehyde symptoms, uh, runny nose, uh, cough, problems sleeping, headaches, fatigue, and so on. I mean, they're, they're, they're typical. You, you can, you can uh, interview a person and go down through and... and you know, there's a classical list of formaldehyde symptoms and patterns. Humidity goes up, you get more symptoms. Uh, closed windows, you get more symptoms, things like that. I guess that's a catch-22 in New Orleans, though, or in that area. If you, you've got high relative humidity and high temperatures. and Oh, we sure do. I, I, I remember uh, testing a mobile home uh, for a lawsuit in uh, uh, relatively close to New Orleans in probably 1986, 87. And, uh, yeah, it was... Uh, but at the same time, uh, it does another thing. It bakes it out a lot faster as well. I see. Uh, you have a, a lot of humidity, a lot of temperature, higher temperature. Uh, when I used to do uh, testing for mobile homes in, in Florida, uh, you took comparable mobile home in Florida and a comparable one in Indiana. The one in Indiana would be two to three times higher. Why? Because <laughs> down in Florida, the temperature and humidity were higher and so the levels came down much faster. I see. Well, let's uh, let's move on to the IH101 segment, and we'll, we're going to bring you back in a minute, Dr. Gardish. Thank you. Okay. Well, well, well. Good, <laughs> good morning, good afternoon, whatever the case may be. Good day, Dieter. How are you? I'm just fine. How are you? I'm great, thanks. For the, the good, listeners that good. don't know you, this it, is Dr. Dietrich Wow. <laughs> I have a couple of war stories. Well, not war stories. If somebody wants to learn something about lead exposures, I would suggest that they look at Alice Hamilton's book called Exploring the Dangerous Trades. She knew almost 100 years ago how bad lead can be for you. Dieter, thank and you. For I, I know that you on. read it. I know that you, you, you in fact, I, I, I lend you the book. Fascinating. Doesn't matter. Fascinating book. It's, un, it's, it's unbelievable a, what this woman did. A must read for anybody in this industry. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's fun to read. I mean, it's not dry reading. I mean, that woman can write. I mean, she was a prolific writer anyway. So that actually got the lead uh, uh, out of the way. And yes, I would say lead is highly toxic, particularly to kids. And I think once that damage is done, I think it's there permanently. I, 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 I'm pretty sure of that. Uh, once these brain cells are gone, and particularly at a young age, man, that's terrible. So one should uh, watch out for that, no doubt about it. Well, Dieter, you've done uh, a it, great, great job in the past of explaining for me the parts per million, parts per billion, and all that. Was there something else yeah. you wanted to say first? or? Uh, yeah, just very briefly about formaldehyde. Uh, one of the major studies on which the 
today the TLV, the threshold limit value from the ACGIH, I'm not going to get caught, <laughs> that is the American Conference of Governmental Industrial Hygienists, uh, when they changed it, was based on studies done at the University of Pittsburgh, Graduate School of Public Health, Eve Allery and uh, Craig Barrow. Uh, and there's another lady, I, I forgot her name right now. Anyway, they did the, in, in fact, it's in the TLV um, documentation, uh, that paper is in there. And it was much too high. And just as an aside, I measured in 19, that must have been 80, 81. Uh, there was a trailer manufacturer down the Pennsylvania Turnpike, and there was a trailer that had been sitting there. No ventilation. I mean, it was manufactured. The door, I mean, buttoned up, completely buttoned up. And I opened the door. I almost thought I died uh, instantly. I think we measured 20 parts per million of formaldehyde, which is unbearable. Hmm. And, uh, in fact, when I smell formaldehyde, I, I feel like throwing up. So, But that's, that's a personal thing. Anyway, uh, so the uh, formaldehyde uh, chemists have uh, started to make much more um, stable molecules. The old days was urea formaldehyde. That stuff deteriorated, really, and emitted formaldehyde. And then they went uh, uh, to the phenol uh, formaldehydes, and they, they, have, they, have, they have done quite a bit with it, and they knew that they had problems. And they engineered and, 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 and did it all right. Okay. Yes. What the heck is a PPM and a milligram per cubic meter of air and all of that? Are we ready for that? We're ready, Dieter. Everybody has a pencil. All right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I have to, I can't, I can't resist to quote my old toxicology teacher, Henry Smith who is mentioned many, many, many times in the TLV uh, documentation uh, um, from ACGIH. I explained that before. So Henry Smith taught me many, many years ago what one part per million is. And we've, we, we tried that out in practice. Uh, we, if you take one drop, one drop of vermouth and mix it into 16 gallons of uh, gin, you obviously have a very dry martini, <laughs> and you have a scientific martini because that is one part per million. In other words, what I'm saying is 16 gallons are approximately a million drops. So it is one drop in 16 gallons, which is a million drops. That is one part per million. It's an incredibly small number, and we are playing with it, you know, and... And, and, and don't, don't, don't realize how small a quantity that is and how difficult it is for a chemist to measure these concentrations. If you don't like the gin and the vermouth, you can also express it in distance. It is one inch, one inch in 16 miles, the same 16. One inch in 16 miles. Wow. That if anybody is... Um, is uh, has the the the, 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 the right the, the, the metric system okay. that is one inch and twenty six kilometers, or about one centimeter in thirteen or so kilometers. I, I mean, you. it's unbelievable. You said the right system, right? <laughs> Correct. That, that, that is the, well. Smart people use the metric system. That's and why I, we have you. <laughs> I have unfortunately gotten accustomed to the uh, American system over here. Now, what's a part per billion, Dieter? Uh, a part the, per billion. Well, that is a drop. Now, a billion is there are three more zeros behind the million. Maybe people in Washington they know that <laughs> they spend billions <laughs> and trillions. I, you know, I, I don't use it very often uh, with my money. That is. Uh, so now you have a drop in sixteen thousand gallons. That's a swimming pool. That is a tank truck. Can you imagine that? One drop of a contaminant in a tank truck, 16,000 gallons? It's mind-boggling. But it's, it's something that we can measure. And, uh... yeah, and we have, that is the amazing thing, 
And we, we take that for granted when we send our samples in. Uh, it, uh, we take that for granted that, oh, the chemists will do that. I mean, it's incredible that you can measure quantities like that. It's amazing. But let's go back to the PPM. So we have one part per million is one drop in 16 gallons of water uh, or gin uh, or one inch in 16 miles or, by the way, uh, one minute in two years. That gives you an idea. I mean, one minute in two years is one part per million. Wow. So now we have the, the next thing is when you use part per million, you've got to be careful. Parts per million can only be expressed in the same medium. You can have one part of gas in air that is vapor in vapor. You can have one part, uh, ppm liquid in liquid, like that one drop in 16 gallons. That is one ppm. So it's liquid in liquid or solid in solid. So if somebody tells you that they measured one ppm of lead in air, forget it. He doesn't know what the hell he's doing. If he says it's one part per million of lead in water, forget it. He doesn't know what the hell he's doing. You can have one part per million of lead in dirt. Now we have solid in solid. It, that has to match. Now, if you want to be careful and always right, you express all your concentrations in milligrams or micrograms per cubic meter of air. Then you are always right. You can have yeah, one milligram of lead in air. You can have one milligram of lead in uh, water. You can have one milligram of lead in, in, in soil or whatever. So that one milligram per cubic meter or that one the milligram per cubic meter, you are always right. You can, you can um, convert from milligrams uh, per cubic meter to um, a ppm and vice versa. Uh, there are formulas. In fact, they are in the TLV list from the ACGIH, the threshold limit values from ACGIH. And I think... Uh, OSHA has them also in their list of the PELs, the permissible exposure limits. And there, you know, if you want to have the TLV in milligrams per cubic meter, you take the TLV in ppm, you multiply by the molecular weight, and you divide by 24.5, which are standard con uh, in, under normal conditions, 72 degrees or thereabouts. One mole of any substance occupies 24.5 uh, liters. I never ever understood that, but that's the way it is. Well, Mother Nature does it. So there are ways of transforming it to, you know, to recalculate it, yes. All right. Well, thank you, Dieter. We appreciate the, uh, the Industrial Hygiene 101 session, and uh, we're, I hope to bring you back to do that on, on uh, maybe every other week between IE Connections. We'll switch to IH101. Oh, that's fine. That's fine. Just give me the topic, and um, sometimes I may have to refresh my memory. I'm getting old and forgetful, <laughs> and uh, I gladly talk about it. My God, I taught it for 30 years or 40 years almost, and uh, any time, no well, problem at all. Can we bring you back for the roundup? Sure. Okay. I, I, I want to stay on the line. Great. We'll talk to you in a couple of minutes then. Sure. Thank you, Dieter. Okay. Uh, we've got Thad Goddish back on here. Okay. Dr. Goddish, real quick before oh, before we get... On. Go ahead. I'm on. Okay. Before we get started, Dieter referred to a, a little thing we have here on IAQ Radio. I just want to warn you, warn you that um, if you use too many acronyms, the acronym police might pull you over here. Just a little, little something. If you, we uh, have to be careful we, we, in this business, we hear all these acronyms and people don't know what they mean. So that's what Dieter was referring to when he uh, was very careful about not getting pulled over. All right. What I'd like to do next with, uh, with you is talk a little bit about your IAQ, some of the indoor air quality research you did in schools. And what are some of the issues that you've researched and some of the problems that you find? What are the biggest problems, I guess? Uh, number, well, there's two major problems in schools. Uh, uh, you know, we've, we've done studies, surveys on teachers, and uh, uh, basically teachers have a relatively high 
complaint rate or you know common indoor air quality symptoms running nose headaches fatigue and that type of thing so when we surveyed teachers doing it not blind but that you know keeping the teachers anonymous and so on we get very high we're talking about 20% or so teachers having symptoms that come on while they're in the school building and pretty much resolve within an hour or two after leaving the building so you know sick building symptoms or indoor air quality kind of complaints related to typical problems of sinuses and that type of thing are very common among professional staff in school buildings certainly in this part of the country and I don't I suspect that that's pretty much true in other parts of the country as well and there's a number of reasons for that we've done studies for instance on ventilation in school buildings and at least 50% of classroom spaces in our studies are under ventilated they don't get enough outside air they don't get enough fresh air and one of the things that I've observed and we don't have the scientific studies to definitively nail it down but there are a number of studies that suggest it as you get above a certain level of for instance carbon dioxide we use carbon dioxide as an indicator of how well space is ventilated you get up above 1500 parts per million then the number that you know about 10 o'clock in the morning 11 o'clock in the morning you have an increasing number of teachers complaining about headaches and fatigue feeling wiped out even halfway through the day and pretty much that's gone it's once they leave the building the symptoms associated with what I call allergy type symptoms now I can see ventilation causing headaches and fatigue or poor air quality causing that the question is what causes these other kind of symptoms like running nose and so on and what we basically showed in our studies is that it's related to apparently to dust more dust is in a building the less clean it's in a building the more symptoms that are the respiratory type of symptoms what we've also done we've studied school buildings we've studied mold in school buildings we've also studied allergens allergens such as dog cat and you couldn't believe how much cat and dog allergen gets into school buildings even though there's never been a cat or dog in a school building the kids bring it to school on their clothing it gets off their clothing it gets on the desk it gets on the carpets and things like that so let's say you're a teacher and you're allergic to cat well there's no cat in your school building but on the other hand some percentage of the students that you're teaching have cats and they bring the cat allergen the cat dander on their clothes or you're allergic to dog cat is more common but let's say you're allergic to dog you don't have dogs at home you don't have a dog in the school building but boy there's a lot of dog allergen on the in the carpets on the desk and things like that some schools particularly in lower income a lot of cockroach kids bring the cockroach you know the fecal material and stuff like that on their shoes and clothes and so on actually even bring mold spores in when students come into a classroom the mold spore level goes up they bring it on their clothes so there's a number of interesting things that you observe in doing these kinds of studies you say well is there an indoor air quality problem in here and you know if and it may end up to be something as simple as the person who's getting symptoms is allergic to cat and the cat allergen is being brought in by a colleague by students and so on and that is one of the factors that causes the symptoms so you know they go away from the building they get better so ventilation is number one I think dust allergens is number two in school buildings Last week we had Werner Braun, the president of the Carpet and Rug Institute, and he was talking about indoor air quality and carpeting. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are about the use of carpet in – let's go with schools for a starter. Well, you know, I have carpeting in my home. 
and uh, there are advantages to carpeting. It's uh, you know soundproofing and uh, gives you more of a ambiance and that type of thing. But on the other hand, uh, if you're prone to allergies, carpet is a great place for allergens to uh, settle into, accumulate, and get resuspended. Uh, carpeting is a great sink for a variety of organic things that can get, uh, can cause allergy-type symptoms. Uh, I do not recommend carpet in school buildings because it's extraordinarily difficult to clean, keep them clean. Uh, and, you know, because you have the kids coming in and uh, they bring all kinds of stuff. I mean, one, in order to keep carpets clean in a school building, uh, you'd almost have to shampoo them about once every three weeks. Uh, typical shampooing in a school building is they're lucky if they do it in good school districts or more prosperous school districts uh, twice a year. Uh, teachers love carpeting uh, because it is more, they feel it's more comfortable. Uh, the sound, it deadens the sound. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, you know, in my experience, I rec I've recommended for 20 years to school facilities managers, don't put carpeting into schools. It just it just creates more problems than it's worth. Okay, and as far as residential goes, I guess don't. That depends. Uh, that depends on you know if you if you're uh, if you have children or family members who are prone to allergies. Uh, carpeting in uh, a residence is not that great of an idea, and particularly in a bedroom or, let's say, in a family room. But if you don't, uh, there's nothing wrong with uh, having carpeting in your home unless you have, uh, you know, family members who visit, and, and every time they visit, uh, they, they, they start to develop symptoms. And, you know, if your son and daughter uh, and or grandchildren don't want to come because they're, every time they come to grandma or grandpa's, they get... Uh, they get uh, allergies and get sick, and that's not a, or asthma even. That's not a good idea. But you know, uh, carpeting has its uh, you know there there are times when it's 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 a good idea, and there are other times when it's not a good idea. And I guess maintenance is the key. Maintenance is the key. Carpets get dirty, and if they are not cleaned regularly, uh, it, they're going to accumulate a lot of allergens. Let's move on to another subject here. It's been in the news a lot lately, this uh, MRSA, M-R-S-A, methicillin-resistant staphylococcus aureus. I'm, I'm curious if you've been dealing with calls uh, because of the, you know, the news media and the fact that we are actually seeing, I don't know if it's just being reported more, we're seeing more cases of this in the, uh, you know, in schools and in, in the general public. Uh, do you have any comments or any experience well, with this uh, I, I don't really I don't I haven't gotten any calls on that obviously it's been widely reported in particularly in the last three months uh, staphylococcus re resistance is a real concern because obviously it is we all have staphylococcus on our uh, skin surface I mean it's a, it's a no it, it's a normal inhabitant of human skin and, of course, when we get a cut or a wound or uh, surgery, uh, you know, that's, that's when, you, when you have surgery, you know, you have the, uh, the adage about the, the, the uh, operation was a success, but the patient died. Well, usually, why does the patient die? Because of a staph infection. And uh, obviously having antibiotics that are, uh, can keep a staph infection under control is absolutely uh, essential. Otherwise, you're going to lose patients in, in uh, uh, surgical theaters and, and, and so on. And, of course, uh, having uh, resistant uh, uh, staff out there and, and spreading through the population is, uh, is scary. It's not a very good thing to have. I mean, it's, uh, but uh, uh, antibiotic resistance is increasing among the uh, American population is probably increasing among the European population as well because we 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 use antibiotics uh, if in you know to feed cattle and to chickens and, and so on and there's a number of ways that you can basically uh, push the envelope in terms of getting uh, resistant strains of this and that and it's an increasing public health concern. I want to move on, if you if you don't mind. We're, we're running a little short, and I wanted to get to a 
study I saw you had done on co excuse me co-located concurrently collected total airborne mold samples and uh, I understand uh, that your wife actually helped you out with that study and I'm, yeah, I'm, uh, well my wife and I have been collaborating on mold studies since 1992 so uh, we've done a number of joint studies over the years and now these have include mold levels in, in inside of homes uh, uh, relationship to uh, health problems and the like, and what are the sources are, and that type of thing. In the last uh, probably 10 years, we've done a lot of work on uh, sampling methods, and uh, obviously the sampling methods that most people use today are uh, things like aerosol cassettes and uh, Burkharts, and you know, where you do uh, take a mold sample. Uh, and uh, analyze it and look at uh, what is the total mold spore concentration, what is the concentration of Aspergillus penicillium and Cotosporium, and those type of things. And of course, uh, professionals, indoor air quality professionals, mold specialists, and so on, have to they take their samples, uh, follow the appropriate practices, send their uh, samples to the laboratory, and then, of course, depend on the laboratory to give them accurate results. And unfortunately, uh, the news is bad. Uh, the average uh, professional really cannot depend on a laboratory to give them accurate results. Uh, we, we, we took samples, side-by-side -side samples, sent them out uh, to 10 different laboratories and got results that uh, differed by a factor of 10. Uh, well, you know, if you send it to one laboratory and you get a low number and you say to the client, you don't have a problem because the number's too low. And if I had sent that same uh, sample to uh, another laboratory and it's 10 times higher, uh, and they might conclude, well, that's a high number. Uh, boy, that, that really, uh, that, that's disconcerting. Uh, that's, that's uh, you know, you need to have confidence in your laboratory. And the problem, of course, is laboratories, uh, they're, they're really, they, they have internal standard practices, but they're not consistent across the industry. And uh, some laboratories, uh, they'll do their counts at 400. Some will do their counts at 600. Others, uh, a few will do their counts at 1,000 uh, magnifications. You know, when I uh, don't have my glasses on and I'm uh, teaching a lecture in my class and I'm looking up on a screen, and I don't have my glasses on, I can't see the screen. Well, that's uh, when you count at 400x and the spores are extremely small, and that's particularly the case with Aspergillus and Penicillium, you're not going to count those. And uh, so you get an undercount. And there are, there are some laboratories uh, that get undercounts. Uh, I've been counting mold spores uh, since I got my first mold sampler in 1984 and I've been doing mold since that time and I've always done my own and I've always done it at a thousand X and uh, uh, when I when you know the numbers I get at 400 and the numbers I get at a thousand uh, differ by a factor of four so wow. four times four times the concentration just using two different magnifications and there's no uh, standardization throughout the industry. There's no and standardization, and, and one of the problems, of course, uh, you know, uh, typically uh, for me to do a count is going, and I'm only going to count 5% of the total trace. It takes me anywhere from 15 minutes to a half hour. The typical commercial laboratory takes from 5 to 7 minutes for a, what they say, a whole 100% uh, count. Uh, it, it can't. It can't be done. You, I mean, you just sort of skim across the surface, you know. And and uh, when the mold gets deposited, uh, spores and other particles get deposited on that uh, tacky surface, uh, it's a multi-multi-plane type of thing. There are uh, there's you know the big ones are easy to see. Uh, the, the small ones may be buried under the bigger ones or just simply further down in the medium, and you have to sort of take your adjustment and go back and forth. So the reality is that how comfortable should one be that the result you're getting is the true result? Uh, based on our research, basically, you have no comfort whatsoever. Well, then, 
would you lean toward uh, doing culturable samples versus total spore samples? Well, or one of the things about culturable is that the numbers are accurate. Okay, they're okay. absolutely accurate. The problem is that uh, for your average uh, bold spore that's out there, uh, you can have anywhere from one to thirty percent of a particular type. Uh, basically uh, that will grow on your culture medium and the others are dead or they won't grow on your culture medium and so uh, you, you don't count you get you don't get to count the dead ones the dead ones are just as allergenic as the live ones are so despite the fact you get accurate counts you really don't get a measure of what the exposure risk is relative to health problems like allergy and asthma. Uh, you might, you, you can identify the difference between aspergillus and penicillium, and that's a real advantage. And for many years, I actually used both methods. And of course, uh, uh, you know, obviously, if you send them out to laboratory using both methods, you run up the cost to the point where the average professional is not going to be able to afford that, or you can't, you know, the client's not going to pay for it. That's the problem we find. People just don't have the money to pay for. Well, they have the money. Uh, in many cases, they have the money. It's just that they don't really know what they're getting in return for their money. And, uh, you know, uh, it's going to cost $500. Well, you can buy a new refrigerator and a new TV for that, and they know what they're buying. But when they're uh, buying, uh, what do you call it, mold sampling, uh, it's a lot more abstract. That's a great point. That's a great point, Bill. Well, let's uh, let's see if we can't bring the gang back together here. We do what we call the roundup, and um, I had a few other questions for you, but we may have maybe uh, one of our other guests here can help me out with them. Okay, let's see if we've got the, is Glenn, Glenn Feldman, are you on the line? I'm here, I am here. Dieter and Glenn, both, great, welcome guys, and Glenn, I, I'd like to start with you real quick, did you have anything you wanted to ask um, Dr. Goddish? Well, I, I wanted, I couldn't help but uh, uh, come in on that comment he made about uh, the carpeting in the schools, because it, it so contradicts um, the message that we heard last week from Mr. Braun, <laughs> and it's a subject that um, you know, I've followed for, for years and years and seen uh, arguments on both sides of it. I guess my question is, what, what about the schools that have the carpeting in place but may not have the budgets and so forth to be able to clean them every three weeks? Um, what's your recommendation there? Tear them out now and, and go back down to whatever subfloor is underneath it, or uh, is there an alternative that you can offer up? Well, basically, what I recommend is uh, vinyl. Uh, vinyl tile, and uh, uh, rarely have I recommended to uh, a school that they should tear out the carpet and replace it with vinyl tile. What I typically do is I recommend to schools if you if you if you have a choice uh, and you're going to uh, you're going to do any renovations or any building, uh, do not put in carpet because carpet is a, such a great reservoir. And uh, you're going to get all kinds of allergens in it, and uh, it's very difficult to keep clean. And basically, you're going to have uh, healthier teachers and healthier students if you don't use carpet. But generally, I, I don't uh, making uh, recommendations about removal and replacement. We're talking about a high-ticket item. Can be a high-ticket item, and a lot of schools, when it comes to budgets, uh, the place where they stamp is on maintenance okay Dieter would did you have anything you'd like to add uh, well yeah I certainly do believe that we got to we got to standardize our counting of mold spores and uh, I know you heard me say that before I was there when we started counting asbestos fibers and my counts were always higher than everybody else's because I had a much better microscope 
and I did it at a higher magnification. And at the time when the standard came out, and I said, well, not everybody can afford a $30,000 uh, microscope, research microscope. And they went with the, what is that, 400X or something like this uh -huh. to count uh, you know, face contrast microscopy for asbestos. Right? On the other hand, at least, we, yeah, at least we are comparing oranges and oranges and not oranges and apples anymore. Okay. Dr. Gardish, so would you like to... That that, that, that would be a step in the right direction. And, I mean, with these biological samples, you're looking at even more problems. Which medium do you use to grow your uh, uh, mold spores, or for that matter, bacteria? Somebody says, oh, we use this one, we use that one, we use that one. Well, uh, probably it might be a great idea to take, you know, for one sample, uh, take a total one with an aerosol and... Uh, four extra samples on different media and uh, look at them. The laboratories would love that because they make a hell of a lot of money. Well, they certainly would. I, I historically, uh, when I've tested buildings uh, going back to the middle 80s, uh, I used Burkhart. Uh, the Burkhart, yep. Burkhart samples, and I'd always take Anderson. Uh, I'd use Anderson MEA and Anderson DG18. And... Uh, uh, actually, you get higher numbers on DG18. DG18 is really great for aspergillus, and and, and in my opinion, and based on the scientific studies that I've seen, uh, species of aspergillus and penicillium are more likely to pose health issues than most other species, in part because of their size. Many of them are in a two and a half to three micrometer range. Uh, they uh, remain airborne for longer periods of yeah, time. Easily inhalable. They're easily inhalable, but because they're low settling velocity, the concentration is going to be higher. Of course, yeah. Well, gentlemen, we could do this all day, but we're running out of time. I really appreciate it. Maybe we can have you back again, Dr. Gaudish, and bring you back and talk a little bit more about the mold issue. Well, we can do that. Uh, as a native western Pennsylvanian who doesn't live too far from where you live, uh, uh, you can sort of take me back to Pennsylvania again. I really, I didn't realize that until we talked before the show, and that, that was uh, interesting to hear. And uh, if you're ever in the area, I will have to keep in touch by email, and uh, I'd love to meet you in person someday. Maybe we'll bring you into the studio. Uh, that might happen. Uh, that would be great. Well, thanks again for joining us. We appreciate having uh, Dr. Thad Gaudish on today's show. I also want to thank our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wow, for joining us today. I also uh, appreciate... Pleasure, pleasure, uh, pleasure. Thank you, Dieter. Always great to have you. And uh, the IH-101 section went well. We'll have to do that again in two weeks. Next week, we'll have our other uh, member of the Roundup, Mr. Glenn Fellman, back for the IE Connections What's News, if that's uh, on your schedule, Glenn. Yeah, and hey, Joe, you know what we'll be talking about? The 100th edition of Indoor Environment Connections, our February edition. All right. Hey, that's a big one. Big milestone. <laughs> Great. Excellent, Glenn. Well, thanks for joining us today. I also want to uh, make sure we thank the wingman, Chris Boisel, for helping us out here. And, uh, of course, most importantly, I want to thank our growing group of loyal listeners. We had a nice uh, group online here today, and it looks like the downloads are coming along fine. Thanks to all of you. Please come back and join us again next Friday at noon for the next broadcast of IAQ Radio. This has been another IAQ Radio production. 